This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Getting started with the Dracula dossier. Anatomical tables. The Brompton Cemetery time machine. And Star Wars The Force Awakens. where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no good we get up to. And as always, Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash murder Ken and Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Murder of crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. <laughs> That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. The clatter of dice, the parquet floors, the dipping of pita chips into red pepper hummus, and the... Father John Misty album cover mounted on the wall tell us that we've entered an oh-so-contemporary installment of the Gaming Hut. In this case, I thought we would uh, fulfill in about 15 minutes uh, multiple times a request that I think we've gotten a multiple times about Dracula dossier. And Ken, could you describe what that request is? Uh, the request is that people receive the oh so beneficent quantity of uh, information about the Dracula dossier, all the myriad ways that the adventure could go, and they feel a sort of trembling at the gate like a racehorse, and they want to know, how do we start it? And there is a scenario called the Harker Intrusion that is available uh, to all the backers in the Edom files, but many people want to start it a different way than that way, and that's what we're here to do now, right? Right. And to back up just uh, slightly for those coming to our podcast for the, the first time as part of their New Year's resolutions, the Dracula dossier is a, a gigantic, ambitious, uh, amazing, improvised scenario in which you are given all the pieces and bits and parts uh, for the players 
to decide where to go in a big overarching campaign uh, in which they are given a big player handout and get to sift it for clues and decide where to go next. And in this case, the uh, handout is an expanded version of Bram Stoker's uh, novel Dracula with the stuff that the uh, British intelligence services took out of it, uh, put back in, and assorted marginal notes. And so that is supposed to lead the players on uh, their sort of player-driven uh, campaign in which the GM reacts to what it is that they're doing. And that's uh, based uh, somewhat on the Armitage Files, which is a similar player handout, player-driven uh, improvised campaign that I wrote for Trail of Cthulhu. But I think because the spy genre is not as hard-encoded on the DNA of gamers as the Cthulhu investigation, I think people are uh, looking for a bit more of a, a, a prod to get them started and get the players into that player-driven mode. So before, let's not repeat what the Harker Intrusion is doing. Uh, what does the Harker Intrusion do? The Harker Intrusion sets up a pretty basic, it's what we call in Knights Black Agents a cherry adventure, in which you discover that the world is bigger than you thought it was and that that biggerness involves vampires. And so you are drawn into this uh, series of mysterious hugger-muggers and you follow a contact uh, through a number of interesting uh, little sidelights that sort of open up little doors into the Dracula dossier's world. And then at the end, you receive the Dracula dossier as your contact is dramatically killed and Edom and Dracula are both closing in and you flee that situation and have now catapulted yourself into the Dracula dossier campaign with the Dracula dossier in-game handout, which is a different thing. Right. So let's uh, think up as many other possible uh, introductory or uh, cherry adventures as we can for the rest of the segment. So the first one that uh, comes to my mind, let's pick the low-hanging fruit here when you're dealing with MacGuffin. Uh, what do you typically do in a MacGuffin scenario? Well, how about a heist scenario in which the uh, team is assembled by an uh, employer who is shadowy but uh, determined as, as trustworthy by all of the player characters? And I guess you could start off by because uh, the players, of course, in this scenario expect to get burned, and they are going to get burned by, but not by their employer. So <laughs> you, you, you have them uh, all explain what it is that they, why they're trusting this guy, and why they know that he's not going to uh, screw them at the end. And then uh, they uh, have to track down. Uh, they know that there's this vault, and they think they're getting a, a hard drive full of. Uh, well, they don't know what, but they don't really care. They're all independent operators who are. Uh, sort of lone wolves, so this sort of gets you away from the uh, typical format where they're uh, hard-working intelligence agents until the first episode in which they get burned. Here they've they've already departed, they're independent contractors, and they get hired for a heist, and so you give them all of the fun of this heist scenario, and of course uh, it's not just you know, three hours planning and then they go in and get the thing. As they start researching in order to conduct the heist, they alert other people to the uh, existence of this thing that they're after, or they discover that other people are also after it, and they have a sort of a race against time, and they have some fights and stuff, and then at the end, they open up the vault, and instead of the MacGuffin that they, or even the employer, uh, expects, there is the uh, copy of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula with all the extra stuff in it, and that's how you can uh, pull them in. And if they, you've already established an affection for the employer, that gives you the, the variant of the thing where, uh, you know, then something happens to him, and maybe he's 
you know, for a variant on the Harker intrusion. Maybe he's not uh, bumped off, but perhaps he has been uh, kidnapped. And there are guys who want to trade the book for your employer. Now, what do you do? And that leads you into your uh, episode two. The heist opening, of course, harkens back to that not particularly classic Dracula 2000, on which we have previously riffed on an earlier episode. Um, you can do a whole bunch of different versions of the heist, whatever kind of heist it is that your characters might be involved in. Uh, for example, your characters might be running security for someone who's moving an important thing from point A to point B. Uh, the Dracula dossier has already been leaked by Hopkins. It's fallen out into the real world. Someone has recognized this is just what the CIA vampire program or the Russian vampire program or the German vampire program or the Vatican have always wanted. You need to get to another safe house as you're escorting it. Bang. It's attacked by, you know, some mysterious force. You wind up the only survivors with the cargo go, right? Was the mysterious force vampires? Was the mysterious force a British uh, Secret Service kill team uh, secretly eat them? Or was it both? You 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 don't know necessarily, and you have to piece that together. The only thing you know is that they were willing to kill a lot of people to get this uh, this book. Uh, another possibility, um, you have a mentor, a trusted mentor for whatever reason, and he's been feeding you clues throughout the thing, and you go back for a completely unrelated meeting, and... He is dead, and because you know him, you can piece together the clues within his office or his, uh, you know, villa or wherever it is your trusted mentor hung out to be safe from the, the security agencies. Um, you know where he would hide something that would be worth killing him over. And so it becomes sort of a Dan Brown puzzle hunt in which you are one step ahead of MI6 trying to, or Dracula trying to find the, um, uh, the Dracula dossier, which he received, recognized was important, hid in his secret hidey hole, and then was killed. So that, you know, he couldn't use it against them. Uh, Robin, you want to take another possibility? You got your reverse heist. Uh, you uh, are uh, tracking down uh, this heist team that has uh, taken a, a MacGuffin that's important to you. And you uh, come across intelligence that they're going to hit a particular uh, site. Uh, you don't uh, you want MacGuffin one. You don't care what MacGuffin two is, uh, but. You want to round these guys up, and as you do so, you discover that they are looking for this book. And uh, at the end, uh, when you finally uh, catch them, uh, then you know in through the window come the, the yet another force who care about MacGuffin two instead of MacGuffin one, and decide that they uh, your witnesses they want to wipe you out, and uh, you manage to uh, uh, split with uh, your MacGuffin and the book, and now you need to figure out why people are trying to kill you and what it means. And so in order to understand that, then you have to start proactively investigating the details of the book. And another one from you. Take another leaf out of the Armitage files. Um, you have a piece of the book. You've intercepted uh, chatter back and forth um, between some bad actor and some other bad actor. And, and they're like, we need to get this book. And so you are trailing these guys because you know they think the book is important. And these guys might be Al-Qaeda in Iraq. They might be uh, – or not Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Al-Qaeda in Romania. They might be um, – uh, uh, so, some arms dealers or some other sort of uh, troublesome fellows. And they're like, we need this book because we can use this for leverage in some way. And maybe they just think they can use it for in leverage to get the British Secret Service to back off them. Or maybe they think they can use it for vampire knowing leverage. And so you're following them back and forth, uh, first electronically, then physically. You see them try for 
this item and then you can either take it from them during the uh, thing. You become the ambushers in the previous scenario or you notice that they uh, have a, a partial victory electronically. They're like, we have a piece of it. Uh, in sort of in con- in canon, you can't upload the Dracula dossier, so maybe you don't pull down bits of it. But on the other hand, that's uh, just nonsense magic. If you're willing to allow the possibility of the Dracula dossier being uploaded, maybe you pull down a piece of it out of their information, and then you both have the information. And now you and this shadowy bad guy group, uh, who ideally are sort of tools and rubes so that they can die instructively throughout... Um, uh, are, are tracking down the same information and you think, oh, I'm just trying to get a handle on what Al-Qaeda in Romania or the CIA or the Chinese are up to, but it turns out, nope, you are actually working your way into this uh, centuries-old rivalry between MI6 and Dracula. And be, by the time you know enough, now you've become a threat and for your own safety, you have to get the rest of the book. And so it becomes a, who has this information? Edom has this information. We have to go find out where they store it. And you actually have to crack the physical book out that it was an electronic leak and you'd have to come up with some sort of uh wild uh method to keep them from copying it. There's uh, a method that Adam Gauntlet uh, mentioned in his uh terrific ephemera blog in which the files with the book are bound up with a virus that contains a, um, uh, a tracking uh, system so that when they, when you upload it to anything, that system then sends a signal or sets up a ping that GCHQ or the NSA can read. And so whenever you copy it, whatever you copy it onto is now telling the NSA all its secrets or telling GCHQ all of its secrets. And that would hopefully keep the amount of copying uh, to a minimum. Another one is that you are a security team. Again, you've all become independent operators after your previous uh, work deeper in the world of intelligence. And the uh, one thing about your firm is that you've uh, uh, guaranteed that if anyone ever caps any of your clients, that uh, they are going to be capped. And so that's why uh, you have all of your uh, great, vast uh, riches and your reputation, and you've all sworn to uphold that, and you're hired to guard a film set shooting a new Dracula movie in Romania, and they uh, suddenly the director and the screenwriter are uh, kidnapped and uh, murdered, and the uh, writer's notes for the screenplay are stolen. And in the course of uh, tracking down everybody who had anything to do with that and therefore rectifying your besmirched reputation uh, to the degree that you can, you uh, find out that the writer was using Dracula Unredacted as his great new contemporary take on. Uh, the Dracula story and uh, thus knew too much. And once you find out what's going on, you will also uh, know too much and you will know that there's a lot of other vampires that you have to kill in order to satisfy your uh, vow of vengeance against anyone who whacks any of your clients. Um, another possibility is that uh, one of your characters, uh, one of the player characters, unbeknownst to them is either part of Edom was was a was somehow inducted into Edom and then bounced out, and that can be and, more. And of a, Edom, for for those who are not yet in the know, for, is the is the secret directorate within uh, the secret operation within uh, MI6 that is the uh, people who tried to recruit Dracula and have kept trying to recruit Dracula and have maybe recruited Dracula now to hunt and kill terrorists. Uh, you you might have a Wolf in the Fold scenario where one of your players was in Edom and has gotten out and doesn't want to talk about it, but uh, bits of the of their past life begin to come into their uh, into their work and for their own 
safety and the safety of their friends, they have to sort of direct the team to go find the Dracula dossier. Or uh, one of the characters is unbeknownst to perhaps themselves, uh, a legacy, a descendant of one of the original 1894 crew that hunted Dracula uh, during the first Operation Edom. And as such is being monitored by both Edom and Dracula. And therefore, once uh, either Edom or Dracula, whoever hadn't figured out who they were, twigs to it, that sets off an increasingly dangerous uh, supernatural battle over that character. And that character, for their own defense, have to find out their family history. And it's like, well, yeah, my last name is Holmwood, but I never thought that there was any connection to the royal, to the noble family. Um, my mom always said that we were just good people and that we were from Holmwood in Surrey. And that's, oh my God, I'm, I'm the double great nephew of, uh, Viscount, uh, Godalming, the shadowy figure behind the Ministry of Defense's experimental weapons program. What the hell? And then as they start tracking their family past, they go all the way back to 1894, realize that that was, a uh, an Edom operation again because of their family connections and because of the types of people who are coming after them they know that there must be a fuller explanation for that in order to find it they go to their other sources their other sources say yes there's always been a rumor that there was a secret version of of, of Dracula that MI6 has under lock and key and then again that gives them the incentive to go chase the book down uh, the difference between something like that and some of these other openings is that if you don't start with the book then the game becomes less less improvised because you're still on one channel and the GM has to sort of guess as to what might be interesting and feed things. Uh, it's sort of the reverse way. If the GM looks at something in the director's handbook, decides that would be fun, and then sends that out to pester the players, leading them to find the secret behind it as opposed to the other way around, right? Right. Uh, another option, while we're stealing ideas from other uh, Palgrain books, is the Quandos Born option uh, from the Guy in Reach, and that's a game in which you, all the players, define why they want to hunt down and destroy interstellar arch-criminal Quandos Born. Well, you just port that into NBA. You have uh, each of the uh, players uh, describe why uh, they particularly want to uh, track down and destroy a, a particular... Uh, actor in the uh, shadow world and in this case they can all be working together they can have one core reason and they are given the book as bait by someone else who also wants that person uh, taken out because uh, they uh, know that this person is looking for uh, the book and are therefore probably part of the dracula conspiracy or maybe they're with edom or something and then as you uh, try and engineer your trap for this person, you start to look at the book and understand why it is that they're uh, after it and therefore see that this is part, that their little petty desire for vengeance is just part of a much bigger puzzle and a much bigger problem. And uh, perhaps the uh, real enemy that they all really want to destroy is not uh, this person, but the big D himself. On the Pelgrane website, there is a uh, column that I do called The Call of Chicago. In one installment of that, I riff on your great Quandos Vorn idea, specifically for nice black agents, in a piece called uh, Why Do You Hate Chandler Vaughn? And you can make Chandler Vaughn a uh, glove on the hand of either Edom or Dracula, depending on which direction you want to uh, draw them. And finally, the great sort of in-media res uh, sort of uh, cheating way, uh, the brilliant cheating way to get uh, a series rolling is to put it to the players is that uh, either uh, 
you say, well, you've, you've gotten this mysterious book. Why are you together? And why do you have this book? And then you haven't opened the book yet. You open it, what's in it, and then they find out what it is. And so you put it on them to give you the premise of your campaign. Or there's the uh, somewhat more uh, heavy-handed, but I think perfectly admissible amnesia thing where they all wake up in a uh, hotel room in, uh, you know, just outside of uh, uh, the, on the outskirts of, say, the Spanish desert. And there's uh, a severed hand in the sink and there's... Uh, some other non-matching uh, bloodstains over there, and the would-have-been player character of the player who decided at the last minute they couldn't actually uh, meet every week to uh, take part in the campaign while, uh, you know, her legs are sticking out from under the bed. And there are the survivors. There's a bloodbath. None of them remember what happened. Their uh, memories have been wiped, and when they start to think about it, they get weird headaches and start to see a blurry sort of uh, 70s, psycho Dario Argento visions and there's the book and they've got to figure out uh, what they did what led up to that and why people are trying to uh, uh, hunt them down and, and kill them and again the way to uh, learn that and neutralize that is to delve even deeper into whatever secrets the book has to reveal to them and I think that's a whole bunch of different uh, premises and ways into the Dracula dossier. I, I didn't, I wasn't counting, but uh, that was a bunch of them, wouldn't you say? I think that was technically what you would call a bunch. Uh, well then, it's time for us to uh, move out of this hut uh, and by way of an exciting commercial message into our subsequent hut. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs. 
The classical pillars, the sumptuous tapestries, the stench of human remains hanging in the air tell us we have entered a particularly earthy segment of the History Hut. And today on the History Hut, we're going to look at history as embodied, I suppose, by bodies. Uh, am I right, Robin? Yes, indeed. And, well, th- these these human remains are, are not stenchy at all. They're uh, perfectly well-preserved. No, they merely have a, a um, uh, what do I want to say, a, a certain psychic stench. Yeah, so... Uh, we teased this in the uh, previous episode when we went to the Royal College of Physicians to uh, get to uh, our sneak peek at the book collection of John Dee, which, uh, as you hear this, is uh, now uh, on display at the Royal College of Physicians in uh, London. Uh, we also got a peek at another uh, treasure of their collection, which is on display, I think, at all times in uh, one of the sort of upper uh, galleys or galleries, and that is the anatomical tables of the Royal College of Physicians. And these date back to around the 1650s, and they're big. So physically, these are uh, great big pieces of wood on which uh, various uh, dissected systems of the human body have been uh, lacquered to under many layers of varnish. And there's one that's the circulatory system and one that's the nervous system. I think it's sort of what there's uh, the lymphatic uh, system as as well. So they're uh, really quite striking, and they kind of uh, look like, uh, you know, you can imagine them sort of getting up out of the lacquer and uh, walking around and having uh, game stats as uh, monsters, uh, which just is sort of a reminder of our uh, sort of horror of the human body and how we're used to looking at ourselves from the outside and don't necessarily always want to contemplate uh, what we have on, on the inside. And that harkens to a time when the practice of dissection was only just uh, beginning to uh, come along. Yeah, and they, what what looks like what happened is that you would take a dead body and you would ever so carefully cut away everything that wasn't a nerve. And just imagine that, right? I mean, that is a gr- gruesome project in and of itself. Uh, you know, you can barely think, all right, maybe you can cut away everything that isn't a bone. I can see that. That makes sense. But this is not just your boring old skeleton. This is a whole nervous system, probably of one person, because they weren't over flush with dead bodies in Padua, or at least academically studyable dead bodies. They probably had dead bodies, you know, piling up in the streets in regular Padua, but not in the university. Right. And often uh, these uh, physicians were who conducted dissections were given a quota, right? That, yes. Uh, Elizabeth I, uh, for example, let the RCP itself uh, dissect, like, what was it, 16 people a year or something like that, which... Uh, I thought it was 25. 25. It, was, it, was a, it was a small number of yes. people. A handful, a veritable handful of corpses per year were given to the Royal College of Physicians. Yeah, compared to the but number of the available ones. corpses in Elizabethan England, or in Padua, one assumes. Yes. And, and uh, the, Padua was one of the few places in Europe, uh, and certainly one of the few places in Catholic Europe, that you could legitimately get a hold of dead bodies for dissection. And so these people uh, would take the body, and then having done whatever... Uh, you know, first cut of, you know, learning about it. Then they take a dead body and they peel away literally every bit of the body that isn't a nervous system. And when they've got it all, they sort of extend it out and uh, varnish it down onto the table. And that way you can look at the, um, uh, 
at, at how the, the, the nervous system all fits together. So it's not, it's not even as creepy as a skeleton. It's a million times creepier because you just don't usually see an entire human nervous system laid out for you that way. But they did that as, uh, as you say, Robin, with the, uh, with the veins and with the arteries and with the nerves and then probably with the lymph nodes and lymphatic system. It, it's harder to tell what, so what some of these are. And then with one of them, they don't even know what kind of thing it came from. Our wonderful uh, curator uh, who, who showed us around called it, what was it, the mysterious quadruped or the unknown quadruped? Right. <laughs> and so there's a, there's a part of a person that they don't know what they thought they were dissecting for. Uh, that's sort of like the sort of the torso and head, I think, or torso and shoulders. And then below that is the mysterious quadruped. And so these are sort of like, I guess, maybe beginner dissecting tables or dare we say mythos dissecting tables? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so the, the mysterious quadruped uh, looks a little bit like Amigo. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we all know there's uh, there's no problem uh, if you happen to come into possession of one of these uh, priceless tables and it's uh, not a human that it's Amigo. They won't. They won't resent that or come after you or, or anything like that. No, they're 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 bigger than that. They're they've transcended the corporeal form. That's why they cut people's brains out and keep them in jars or cylinders, I should say. Um, but yeah, the uh, so the actual tables, the physical ones that we're talking about, uh, were given to the Royal College of Physicians by a guy named George Finch, who, by the way, founded the Marylebone Cricket Club, and so is therefore the reason we have Lord's Cricket Ground today. So everyone thank George Finch and drink a Pim's Cup uh, once it's summer again. Don't drink it in January. That's crazy talk. Um, but uh, but he gives uh, the Royal College of Physicians these dissecting tables because apparently he realized they were horribly creepy and he didn't want them in his house. Or I suspect George Finch's wife or sister realized that and... Uh, said, you know, why don't you get rid of these? And he told uh, the Royal College of Physicians that they belonged to William Harvey, the man who discovered the circulation of the blood. And um, uh, we don't know that that is true, I'm afraid. Right. In fact, there's researchers now sort of uh, suspect it was actually a guy named uh, John Finch, Sir John Finch, who has an amazing uh, uh, biography in that he was a uh, a your t- typical Renaissance man. He was a uh, a scientist and traveler, and uh, later on he was uh, ambassador to the uh, Ottoman court at Constantinople. So he's just uh, crying out to be uh, a, a player character in a uh, historical early science uh, weirdness game or, uh, of course, an, an occult uh, investigation game. Uh, and he was uh, known as uh, a lynx with a knife, as in <laughs> L-Y-N-X. And so uh, is uh, recorded as having the kind of incredible skill that would be required in order to uh, separate out every uh, nerve and uh, so that might be lacquered to a table. Because as you say, that's, a, a, you know, an incredible uh, a work of dissection that I think uh, most uh, contemporary uh, uh, doctors would uh, pale at uh, and they would say, hey, why don't we just use an MRI? <laughs> Let's not do that <laughs> well, now. I mean, now that they have, uh, they have the same sort of thing, but it's like a, com- it's a, it's a computer generated deal. And so you can have this whole human sized model of the human body, uh, and you could buy it for, I don't know, I, I assume it's crazy expensive because they're selling it to medical schools. Um, but, uh, but you, but you've got this giant lit up table and you turn on the thing and they, they've got, you know, the perfectly, uh, created, uh, CGI 
skeleton. They've got the perfectly created CGI lymph system. They've got all the, all the systems and you can just sort of bring them up one by one and use them as your sort of, you know, color within the lines, kids. So you put the dead body down onto this giant table with the image underneath it and you can sort of, uh, carve around near it and, and compare your body to the ideal body that you have there. And that I think is part of what it's for as well as, uh, for instruction. Um, uh, John Finch was not only a lynx with a knife, but a guy named Edward Brown, uh, wrote in a letter that Sir John Finch hath tables of the veins, nerves, and arteries five times more exact than are described by any author. And, uh, Finch described, uh, his own tavole tables, um, as better than other people's stupid tables, because <laughs> as an Englishman, he was able to, uh, put together these, um, uh, these tables in a proper fashion, not the slapdash way that you normally got in Padua, I yes, guess. They weren't, they weren't Catholic nerve systems. No, good Protestant dissection. I'm a lynx with a knife. Yes. Plus, John Finch. His advantage is he had a buddy uh, named uh, Sir Thomas Baines, who was also a surgeon, right? And so uh, Sir Thomas Baines and John Finch were best friend BFFs. They were the Holmes and Watson, or possibly the Burke and Hare of their day, and they uh, had a beautiful and unbroken marriage of souls. Uh, so they uh, were were sidekicks and and hung out, and you can just imagine them uh, roistering around the streets of Padua and coming home with a dead body or or or, or an unknown quadruped and linksing it up and and uh, varnishing it down together. And that I assume is probably one of the things that makes your table a little bit better if you've got a co tabler there to sort of hold down all the greasy bits and such. It does right. seem like a lot of work. So the process of turning this into a premise for a, a role-playing uh, scenario, uh, I think uh, this is what we call in the business a no-brainer. Uh, you've, got your, <laughs> you've got your anatomical table uh, that might be uh, stored in your uh, old manner that nobody knows is there, and it's the locus that's responsible for all the haunting and weirdness, and in order to uh, de-haunt the house, you have to find the anatomical table. There's the idea that the person who was uh, uh, cut up was someone who had some sort of uh, ability to create a psychic ripple effect, or possibly some sort of uh, hangman or sorcerer or somebody with uh, enough uh, juju to uh, to haunt you afterwards. And then, of course, there's just the idea that um, the... Uh, Nerves can just separate themselves and come out of the uh, the table and walk around and uh, uh, feed on people and then uh, climb back in. And that might be, you know, your horror at the museum uh, scenario. Uh, don't put it at the RCP. We like them. Don't We don't want them to be eaten. No, they, they should not be torn up. You should do what they did when they made the relic and move it across the country and put it in some other uh, museum. Yes. Um, the other thing that you can do with it, obviously, is when John Finch is ambassador to the Ottoman Empire between 1672 and 1681... Um, he and his buddy Baines are there. Baines dies while they're in Constantinople, so that's something. But I like to think that while John Finch and Baines are linksing it up there in Padua, they have learned, uh, elemental key secrets. And so they are, they have figured out where the key points in the human body are with their dissecting tables. And so they, they bring them there and they can access not just their own martial powers, but also, uh, the key energies of the earth. And when they're in a place like Constantinople, one of the nexus points of the global lay grid, uh, London being another one, by the way, they are able to, um, uh, to utilize it 
for various and sundry, uh, uh, creepy activities. And you can either say they're creepy bad activities, uh, if you are going to play up the whole Burke and Hare, you know, sneaking off with dead bodies thing, or maybe they're good activities. Maybe these are like your, your good, uh, uh, dudes in your sort of 17th century feng shui game. And they, because they have this pressure point knowledge, they're able to send their guys out throughout the Ottoman Empire and fight vampires and fight, um, uh, evil, um, it wouldn't be evil mandarins. It'd be evil viziers. And indeed, um, uh, the viziers, the Kabrulus, who were the Albanian geniuses who ran the Ottoman Empire from behind the scenes, were even at that point plotting an assault on Christendom. And, uh, in hi- our history, John Finch was kind of terrible at his job, but, uh, that's probably because he was, di- uh, distracted, uh, sending his teams of, of key empowered, uh, British martial artists all over the place to, um, uh, to, to, to stop the Vrikalakis yeah, epidemic. Yeah, was just his, or something. his Zorro cover story that he was in. Company. Exactly. He's like the Scarlet Pimpernel. Yeah. He's, um, uh, sort of a, a feckless goof with his buddy Baines. And then later on, they, 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 uh, sneak down into the basement of the embassy and they dress up in their awesome, uh, crime fighting suits and they go out and they, and they battle, um, uh, Dakowitz and, and gosh knows what there in the, in the tunnels under Constantinople. So if you're, uh, in London, uh, you can check these out. There's no admission charge to go and look at them. And, uh, as a museum space, it's open from Monday to Friday from nine to five. And, uh, it's, uh, a quick gander. It's, uh, not, uh, you know, a day's worth of looking, but if you're in that area of London and want to stop by and, uh, uh, check something out that's, uh, a really cool window into the medical past that will also really creep you out. Uh, check out the anatomical tables at the Royal College of Physicians. And uh, I guess that's uh, having said that. That's that sounds like an exit point if I ever heard one. What did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths can be... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. The cry of alien big cats. The footprint of Bigfoot and the whir overhead of what is surely a UFO tell us that we're once more in the mysterious precincts of the Elliptony Hut, the uh, hut that 
covers uh, mysteries and strangeness that uh, don't quite necessarily uh, rise to the level of being magical. They might be pseudo-scientifical. Uh, and uh, in this case, uh, it's another uh, thing we put a pin in from our uh, trip to London, and that's the Brompton Cemetery Time Machine, uh, which uh, is uh, mysteriously close to the venue where Dragon Meat is held in uh, December, or has been for the last uh, couple of years. And so uh, this is a, a story that, uh, well, I don't want to ruin it ahead of time, but it, it strikes me that some of the suppositions here that connect things up to create weirdness are perhaps not as tight as, as Ken, you might weave in a spontaneous nerd troping, but uh, uh, where do we start with this? Uh, there's a, a crypt uh, that uh, uh, dates back to the Victorian era. It belonged to a woman named uh, Hannah Cortoy. She and I think two of her daughters are interred there, and uh, one of her ancestors uh, wants the missing key to the crypt uh, merely to pay uh, respects to the old uh, uh, further branches of the family tree. But there's a uh, gentleman named Stephen Coates uh, who thinks that it's a time machine to ancient Egypt, or perhaps uh, if activated, will reverse uh, your age and turn you young again, which uh, seems like a, an awful lot of possibility there. So, uh, Ken, why why does he or anybody else think that this uh, crypt that is mysterious and that is its key has gone missing must therefore be a time machine? I'm not sure that anyone necessarily ever gets to the why, <laughs> because I think that what they say is this crazy, awesome Egyptian-looking tomb in the middle of Brompton Cemetery with no record of its construction. And maybe this is the seed on, on which time machine speculation uh, happens. It just appeared it's like, like the TARDIS. TARDIS one day. It just showed up, right? Right. And so the uh, the, the notion that the um, – what I want to say, the, the slam dunk, this is a time machine, I'm not sure, really happened. Um, because the uh, – yeah, I believe that it's just the crazy appearance of the thing, the, uh, the sort of notion that it is a – design out of time in Brompton, which is, again, it's, it's not a, it's not a, a gigantic, um, uh, cemetery. It's, it's pretty good sized, but it's not, you know, um, uh, as huge as, as some of the others. It's one of the original 1839, um, uh, Necropolis Act cemeteries that were put in what at that time was far distant outside London to start moving bodies out of the churchyards or stop burying them, at least in the churchyards. Uh, so, so they could prevent, you know, horrible plagues and dyspepsia from destroying. Well, London uh, generates a lot of people that it doesn't have room for afterwards. No, no, it, it, um, it does, it does not really have a, a proper recycling program yet. So they, um, and certainly not in 1839. And so they, they moved them out to Brompton Cemetery, which again, I mean, it's not a small cemetery by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not, you know, it, it's, it's not quite Highgate. If you saw this in Highgate, you'd think, well, it's just one of the eight million crazy things in Highgate, but, but this it's is not the one crazy thing in the West. Brompton. Yeah, this is the, the one super crazy thing in, in Brompton uh, Cemetery. And again, given that there are probably 30,000 monuments in the thing, the fact that one of them doesn't have a record, not hugely surprising. I'd be surprised if, you know, maybe three or 4,000 of them don't have records, but this is the one that looks like a crazy Egyptian tomb. Right. And so that's what makes it interesting. And the fact that they've lost the key, I, I suspect that there is some degree of confabulation that was uh, done by the sort of weird occult nut 
uh, what do I want to say? The weird occult uh, enthusiasts who found, say, the high, the Highgate Vampire in 1970. And I suspect that there was a local bunch of guys who read all about the Highgate Vampire in their, in the, in the Sun or the Daily Mail or wherever it is that you wrote about the Highgate Vampire and said, Oh, we can go to Brompton. Uh, which is closer and see if there's vampires there. And they found this tomb and they were like, Oh, what the hell is that? And they're like, maybe it's got mummies in it because it's Egyptian. And the other's like, well, why would an Egyptian mummy get into this tomb? And they're like, well, cause it's a time machine. <laughs> I, I think it was probably some sort of, of drunken, crazy person, uh, decision. I'm not sure that anyone has ever properly explained the sort of, um, uh, um, <laughs> the, the, the sort of logical chain. Right. If so, I can so, use so that the term. chain of tenuous supposition goes something like this. Also buried there is a guy named uh, Joseph uh, Bonamy, who is a, a sculptor. And uh, because he was a sculptor and interested in Egypt... He was an Egyptologist. He was an Egyptologist. He was not just a sculptor and architect. He was an Egyptologist. Yeah. He went to Egypt and uh, ran around and got in fights over his uh, pay with other Egyptologists. And uh, he developed a, uh, a invention... That was a optical framing device that you would set up inside a tomb, and then with, by looking through a grid, you could do a correct uh, transcription of what the walls looked like on a single uh, on, on your sheets of paper, so that it would allow the precise copying of an Egyptian tomb without you know having to go up and make a bunch of rubbings and damage it. Although he probably didn't care about that, and also a lot of it's on plaster, so it wouldn't necessarily have. Um, uh, created any uh, rubbing anyway. But you know what I mean. Right. So he's buried nearby, and although I don't think there's any record that he actually knew uh, Hannah Courtoy, he's A, nearby, B, a sculptor, C, an Egyptologist, D, associated with uh, machines and, and science, and uh, therefore, uh, he must have built it. Um, and uh, we also know that he was uh, pals with a guy named Samuel Alfred Warner, so that's the next tenuous bit of thing being tenuously connected and uh he was a uh inventor of uh munitions who is now regarded as a charlatan what can you tell us about samuel <laughs> alfred warner well i think that's a little unfair i think he may have just been a crazy person um anyhow he was a uh he, he was a a chemist uh by training i guess you want to say he went to brazil to work for the emperor of brazil um and when he came back from Brazil, as you do, he said, while I was in Brazil, I learned the secret of the invisible shell and the invisible torpedo. Um, and so they were very excited to learn about his invisible shell and his invisible torpedo. And if you are taking the sort of uh, boring buzzkill route, what he meant by invisible was a underwater shell. So he basically just invented a depth charge or a mine and by the invisible torpedo, what he meant was, I'm going to put it on a balloon and float it over the ship, and then no one will see it because they'll be looking at the water, not up at the sky. Right. But people who are and making tenuous connections, don't let that stop them. They've, they've hear invisible torpedo, and they change that to psychic torpedo, which sounds even better and has nothing to do with what he was actually doing. Right. Yeah. And he claimed to be, and this is where we start moving into, um, a uh, bad attitude uh, uh, and and hurtful beliefs. He lied about who his father was. He said his father was a British naval captain named Sir William Warner, who had uh, commanded the ship Nautilus, and that his father had been part of a covert group in uh, in charge of espionage in for the British Navy, and that he had during the Napoleonic Wars perfected his invisible uh, shell 
and his uh, invisible torpedo and that uh, that's why you should pay him a lot of money now. And so people, um, uh, they, they turned it over to the naval records guys and the naval record guys said, well, he doesn't know anything about the actual William Warner. None of these ships were destroyed on the dates that he said they were. And, um, uh, he, uh, he, he didn't do anything. He did put on a, a demonstration of his weapon in 1844 in which he destroyed a ship. But again, uh, I, you, you can argue that either, yeah, it was a mine and it worked, but mine technology by then was pretty old hat. Uh, uh, David Bushnell invented a mine, for example, in 1776, uh, to use against the hated British. And so mines were, were, were done by then. Or you can say, just like any time when the magician gets to set up the act, yep, the act goes off. So the British, Never quite said no to his invention. They kept referring it to different committees to study and waited for him to die, which is the way that the British do things traditionally. <laughs> and sure enough, he did. Um, he died uh, at age 60 in 1853, which is right around the same time that Mrs. Courtoy died and right around the same time that Joseph Bonomi died. So you have this sort of 1849 to 1853. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Bonomi did not die then. Bonomi dies, uh, considerably later, but you have the period he dies right around the same time that, uh, Mrs. Courtois dies. And so you can imagine a world in which, uh, while building his time machine, he is, uh, tasked by the secret, uh, espionage and ordinance committee that Sir William Warner was part of, if he was, which he probably wasn't, to, as long as you're monkeying with the fundamental aspects of space time, why don't you put in a teleport system? Because that's what we've figured out the invisible torpedo actually was, was a teleporter. And that's when they add another layer, which is to say, hey, 1839, they're coming up with this ring of cemeteries. All kinds of crazy tombs are being put up in these cemeteries. What if they're all part of an invisible teleporting grid? And that is, I think, where the current science is on this. Although um, there is, of course, yet more to the story once you've decided that it's um, uh, an invisible teleporting grid, right? Right. Now, it seems to me that, first of all, this is uh, you're not actually in the crypt itself, but you're at some sort of midpoint between all of these different things that a time machine is kind of a misnomer, right? That you would... Uh, if, unless this is some sort of fuel cell for some other thing that actually moves around, it's really more of a time portal. You know, I, I guess I'm being overly literal in, the, in, in this story, <laughs> but uh, and the uh, idea that it uh, just makes you younger—that seems like a whole other myth being uh, uh, tacked onto it. Um, and so, once again, I think we've got some uh, no-brainers uh, once we come to the idea of uh, working up scenario hooks for it. Um, if you're playing the Doctor Who game, of course, that just writes itself. Uh, in fact, it's so obvious if you're playing a, a Doctor Who scenario that probably you want to have it open up and it's just full of weeping angels and it's not a time machine at all. It's mm -hmm. some other... Uh, it's, a sp it's a spacecraft or it's a time machine, but it's the slow kind of time machine that weeping angels is or or Quachel Utaus or something uses. And other other than that, obviously, in, uh, in a Feng Shui game, uh, it must be a Feng Shui site to be defended at all costs. And uh, or possibly a portal to the netherworld. Uh, people could easily get uh, confused uh, by that. And in, uh, I guess, a, a, a horror scenario, it could sort of be a, a locus that just sort of attaches weird beliefs to it. And uh, you could just have a bunch of uh, people who are uh, driven mad by a psychic torpedo residue. It could just be the, the old, uh, uh, not a time machine at all, but just where that the psychic torpedo technology is, is stored and uh, it's leaking whoever it is who 
had the key was uh, has gone missing, and their job was to go in and to you know periodically uh, maintain the equipment so that it didn't uh, poison the neighborhood. But now it's starting to drive people crazy and drive them to commit weird murders and stuff. So you have to figure out some way to get in, uh, and you can't just use brute force because that could set up an explosion that would uh, blow up all of Brompton and Forest Drive and meet to find yet another new venue. So instead. Uh, you have to, uh, you know, there's a MacGuffin hunt for the key to get in there to uh, uh, change the um, settings back to normal. And then once you get in there, it could translate you to a weirdo reality for a follow-up adventure or something like that. Also, of course, we do have to keep in mind the notion that it is not a time machine or a teleport device, but an actual portal to hell. Um, you have your three uh, uh, maidens who are there, who are obviously your um, uh, your dark uh, fates. Or your gray eye, the gray sisters who share amongst them an eye and a tooth. And so they're very creepily uh, on the edge of everything. Uh, it's in a cemetery. So there you go. The Egyptians, of course, believed in uh, the continuation of the spirit after death and its existence in a, in a, in a reachable world, the Tuat. And you have the uh, incredibly thin connection. It's so thin that I barely even want to suggest it. But the connection to the Earl of Kilmory. And the Earl of Kilmory had another Egyptian-style tomb in Brompton Cemetery that was not built by Benoni. It was built by a guy named Henry Kendall, who, as far as I know, no breath of scandal attaches to. But it is Egyptian-style. It was in Brompton Cemetery. And then they moved it out of Brompton Cemetery. And now it's in uh, Richmond, I think. Um, and they moved it out in 1862. And it was there to hold his lover and niece, or not niece, ward, I'm sorry, uh, Priscilla Ann Hosty. And he... Um, uh, he, he eloped with her and she died, uh, according to scandal mongers in his arms of an exploded heart because he had devil, uh, love and, um, <laughs> the uh, devil love, he, exploded heart. We've all, we've all been there. And he, and he, uh, was heartbroken, commissioned this super great, uh, mausoleum for her, had her immured in Brompton cemetery and then thought better of it and moved the building to right next to his own house and then dug a tunnel to it so that he could go to it and visit her in the night without anyone knowing. And he was known for such a uh, creepy activity as black Jack Needham, which I think is all you need to know to make him a uh, sorcerer. Although I don't think that there's any actual evidence that he was an occultist of any kind. He was just sort of a, a creep and a weirdo and which, you know, again, Victorian times, whatever. Um, but, uh, he can be your sort of, and I, 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 when I, when I see these sorts of things, this is sort of the John Belair sort of horror where some wizard did something awful in the past and now it's sort of filtering down to the present and it is sort of drawing new people in. So you would have like, you're, uh, you're a, you're a, you're a girl and because you live in Brompton, you go to the Brompton cemetery and you eat or you live in Richmond, and you go to this, uh, the, the Kilmore mausoleum and you eat your lunch and you are suddenly the attractant. You are attracting creepy, predatory old guys who are part of this almost dead Benoni, uh, death cult that was set up in the 1840s, uh, possibly with psychic torpedoes, possibly not. Who can say? And that, um, you have to turn to your friends who are all uh, people that you're same age. So you're, you're teens and twenties and you have to figure out what's going on 
with all these creepy guys. We have to figure out what's going on with the cemetery. Maybe there's a psychic torpedo. Maybe there's a time machine. Maybe there's ancient Egypt. And maybe there's mummies. Maybe there's ghosts. Maybe there's the three gray sisters. You go to the three gray sisters. Two of them died as unmarried daughters. Uh, so they're going to be maybe sympathetic to you. Whereas the mom is very, uh, the, 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 the Baba Yaga type. And it's like, no, everyone must serve in the afterlife and, and blackjack Needham has my heart or whatever. And so you can sort of build kind of a nice, creepy modern day London, maybe a, an occult bubble gum shoe type adventure where you're, where you're, you're, you've got a, a young, uh, 20, uh, deliberately 21st century protagonists and the villain is this horrible grasping monstrous social structure that is reaching out for you out of victorian times and you can have maybe a, a fun little um uh, sort of a, a progressive horror game uh, built out of that i think right right uh so that's a whole bunch of uh, plot hooks and the series of tenuous connections that uh, makes up the uh, brompton cemetery time machine so it's time for us to get in our time machine which will take us uh from this segment through commercial into our final segment. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness, you can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid Zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. The smell of popcorn, the non-whir of the digital projector, and the hordes of excited children tell us we've entered a very special segment of the Cinema Hut. And in this Cinema Hut, Robin and I are going to be talking about the movie that has captured the mind and spirit of every single person on the face of the globe. And of course, I mean Mo Jin, the Lost Legend, which of course came out of China to huge acclaim uh, <laughs> as a awesome uh, Tomb Raider-y, Indiana Jonesy Chinese ghost story, uh, steampunk, uh, martial arts spectacular, starring the immortal Shu Qi, uh, capturing everyone's hearts and showing that a woman can, in fact, had a major action-adventure franchise. Right, Robin? Oh, no, I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, uh, I thought we were going right. to talk about Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, all right. We can do Star right. Wars. Right, so it's been this a... Is, this, by the uh, way, is where if we had the rights, you would hear the John Williams music. So just play it in your yes, head. Yes, you can all play it in your head. And you've, we're assuming you've all seen it already, because by the time this comes out, it'll be a month. Uh, but just in case we're putting this segment 
uh, at the end so that uh, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, you can uh, turn the episode off and come back to us later. So I think we've given you enough time and we'll, we, we won't throw spoilers at you right away or even necessarily at all. But uh, so, Ken, uh, I think people want to know what we thought of this. So what do you think? I think they do. I liked it well enough. Uh, I think that it was a, you know, a, a in the in the B range, B, B to B plus, I would say, because I uh, I was perfectly happy to see it and I enjoyed it. And there was a lot of things that it did uh, not just better than its immediate predecessors, which it almost could not have failed to do, but it added a couple of interesting things, uh, Phillips into the cycle, but at the bottom line, it was someone putting a piece of onion skin paper over Star Wars and coloring very hard with a crayon. It was not actually what I hoped it would be, which is an actual Star Wars movie that moves us into an, an, a new story and a new way of, of, of experiencing that great, great adventure that it was sort of, well, you remember 1977 Star Wars? Remember it again. And it didn't really have its own voice a lot. And for a lot of reasons, I'm, I'm glad that JJ Abrams sat on his own voice a bit. JJ Abrams trying to direct like early George Lucas is more interesting than either George Lucas or JJ Abrams directing. So I, I kind of liked, uh, his, um, his attempt to static his camera down and, and sort of, and take his lens flare away. I, I think there was a lot of, of bonuses to him moving more Lucas and less Spielberg, but, uh, I didn't, it did not blow my socks off. I was certainly delighted with it. I, I didn't have a, um, uh, a, uh, a, you know, a, a giant scream and frenzy about it. It was, it's, it's worth your, your popcorn. I saw it, uh, pretty cheap both times. So that was nice. Robin, what do you think? Um, yeah, I, I, my thoughts mirror yours. So, uh, I, I liked it. Well, that means they're right. <laughs> uh, and that it's probably not going to be my top 10 of the year, but that's, uh, that's no shame on, on its part. And I think you, uh, and, and it's, I think difficult to, uh, like it without, uh, loving it and not focus on the negative aspects of it. So I want to focus on, uh, I think what works about it, uh, and, and made me, uh, like it. Uh, but I guess the, the, main point that uh, I think a lot of people are making that you just made is is uh, apt that this is not even so much a uh, sequel that is actually a remake, but it's really a remix of mm. the original Star Wars and parts of the other two uh, original trilogy. And I think that uh, the it, it just sort of points to the fact that the original 1977 Star Wars is in its way, such a perfect film and so rewatchable and so uh, well-structured. And so original. I mean, yes. we, we make we make jokes about how it's just a mashup of Hidden Fortress with Flash Gordon. But first of all, that was an original idea all by itself. And second of all, it is so sui generis and so amazing a movie to have come out of one person, fundamentally. It came out of George Lucas against crazy opposition from everyone who knew better. And it came out in 1977, which... Well, not a bad year at all for film was not a Star Wars year for film, right? I mean, that was that we think Star Wars has always been with us and will always be with us, uh, heaven and earth forever. But no, Star Wars has a point that it came out of and it it's so crazily original that it has rewritten our DNA to think that movies were always like that or should always be like that. But it's it's its own powerful uh, a thing. And you can't get away from that. And I think that JJ Abrams was trying less hard to get away from it, even than George Lucas was when Lucas was doing the, the second trilogy, right? Right. Because if, 
If the worst complaint you have about a new Star Wars movie is that it reminds you too much of Star Wars, that that's not so bad, yeah. especially as you suggest, given the the Lucas films, uh, the 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 later uh, trilogy or prequel trilogy or whatever you want to call it. But all of those films, including the new one, all uh, lack uh, the advantage that the first one has. Is that all of the later films have to comment in some way on Star Wars? That they're in a dialogue right. with another film, the way that the other film. Uh, was arguably in a dialogue with Joseph Campbell and uh, Kurosawa and serials and stuff. But all of that stuff was, you know, much more digested and reconfigured into its own uh, thing, whereas any later movie is going to have to uh, deliver uh, a commentary on the new one. And I think it's telling to see this in the hands now of a generation of filmmakers, and we'll continue to see this, who grew up on the original Star Wars. And you can contrast the first uh, films to this one and trace the ways that um, genre and, and nerd culture have uh, changed and what people respond to. So there is a lot of fan service in the new film. And on one level, it takes you out of the film. It's not a classical uh, narrative in that sense. But on the other hand, it is what people are looking for. And it reflects what's going on in all sorts of other genre films where, you know, the Flash TV show is full of Star Wars references, or Doctor Who will throw in references to uh, Star Trek, and and that nerd culture is now made by people who were uh, raised in it and steeped in it, and they assume, uh, I think quite correctly, that that is what people are looking for, is those references, and it's not even uh, <clears throat> sort of postmodern as so much as kind of post-pop culture and it's it's a new uh, I, we sort of think of star wars as establishing the blockbuster era but really there've probably been uh, about three different blockbuster eras and now we're in this sort of rococo very referential uh, era in which people are in on the joke and expecting things to happen like all of a sudden here's the the chess uh, piece again and it's also dialoguing i, I think and if there's something greater about this film it's about the way that it deals with age and the turning of a generation and there's something very uh, poignant about uh you know the way that harrison ford uh looks now and the way that carrie fisher looks now and that uh, uh mark hamill looks now as well and and that a generation has in fact turned in real time and now hamill looks like uh, alec guinness uh and uh the uh if you were a kid uh, during the original era your own uh, aging and process through life is brought out uh, by this uh, film, which also on a thematic level is sort of dealing with um, kind of uh, cyclical issues of, of family and so forth. And we're seeing even more with the new one that uh, the uh, Skywalker clan really are sort of the, the house of Atreus for the movie blockbuster era. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, um, and I think the house of Atreus reference, I want to go back and hit something that you were talking about and then move on with the aging uh, generational concept, which is another strong one. But I think that dropping things like Star Wars references in now is almost like, uh, British authors or European authors at all in, say, the early 1700s dropping classical references, right? This isn't actually about 
Venus and Mars, and it isn't actually about uh, the Trojan War, but I'm going to put it in because the audience wants to see it because it's an illusion that lets everyone know that I'm cool. I'm hip. I'm, I went to the same school you did. I we're part of the same universe. We both recognize a reference to Atalanta. Now we can move on and I can talk about whatever I'm talking about. And I think that dropping those kind of references into other geek properties and this sort of evolving geek mythosphere is it's, it's, it, per, it performs the exact same function. It says we're the same people. We understand the same things. We get the same references. We're all brothers in this exciting journey through my thing together. And it creates a sense of community. And it also builds in a sort of um, uh, thin blooded way, a mythical substructure for what it, uh, amounts to popular culture now all across the, the world. And of course, obviously you can probably assemble libraries of books, finding all the star Wars references and fla- and callbacks in culture since 1977, but there's a lot of them and they don't just stop with nerd culture. I'm, I'm sure that they happen in, in um, uh, everything from hip hop to competitive car painting shows now, but the, uh, but what the generational aspect is, I think, one of the things that is a little stronger in this movie, uh, and maybe because it is so obvious, people don't recognize the strength of it. But obviously, uh, Harrison Ford doesn't just cash a check. He decides to play Han Solo instead of just playing Harrison Ford being too old for this shit. Um, and he does a really great job of reminding you of his performance in 77, but also playing his character now. Um, uh, there's a similar sort of a, of a, of a, of a thing that Carrie Fisher does again, really well, uh, that she has seen, she has been there and done this and it's all happening again and she can't stop it. Uh, when they blow up the, the other planet, there's, um, there's a moment where Carrie Fisher thinks about that and you sort of see Alderaan in her, in her eyes and that, and that's really strong. But I think when we go back to that first uh, teaser trailer that we saw and, uh, the little, uh, land speeder is zooming along and we realize that it is a giant crashed star destroyer and everyone in the world, I think had that moment of the hair going up on the back of their neck, because that is literally the Gothic, right? That is the past, uh, the horrible broken past that is still present in our lives and is still haunting it. And that of course is what the uh, movie is about is that this, the dark side is still coming out of this past that the, the first order has risen from the empire, that this past, sins are reaching forward to grab us and that Kylo Ren has willingly succumbed to the past. And the question obviously is, will Ray be able to escape the horrible destiny of the Skywalkers or like Arrestes, is she doomed to recapitulate it over and over again? And uh, the mentioning of that, that final sequence brings uh, us back to uh, the, the curse, the uh, crash star destroyer, of the beginning of the blockbuster era that Star Wars represents in that of any action-adventure genre uh, blockbuster, it has the best ending. And there is, uh, you know, the fusion of the uh, climax of the personal story, use the Force Luke with the procedural aspect of blowing up the thing in the Death Star, and, you know, that that final act is as good a version of that as can ever exist. And... Uh, that's why now all of the good Star Wars movies that have an ending end with the Death Star being blown up. So Mm -hmm. they still face this incredible roadblock of trying to have a good Star Wars movie that has a different third act. And uh, that uh, in a way that sort of... uh, Or fifth act, I think, in this this case. Well, yes, actually, and the original (laughs) Star Wars has five acts as well. Um, So, of course, 
the new one, which is very carefully a, a remix of the other one, pro probably does as well, which I'm, I haven't, you know, I'll have to get a Blu-ray and sit down with it later to, to determine that to be true. Um, another thing that it does very successfully that is a uh, clear rebuke to the prequels is that it starts the story as late as it could possibly be started and still have a story. And so yeah. rather than here's the movie where we have the uh, slow rise of the return of the empire. And at the end, Kylo Ren puts on the helmet. It's like, Oh no, the, the uh, stormtroopers are already back. They're already kind of winning. Uh, and uh, we're as deep into it as we can possibly get. And that we're starting the story. And the, I think it's in some aspects or elements of the extreme economy, of the film that uh, kind of irked me like the, you know, the, the, uh, MacGuffin could have been explained in a couple of lines of dialogue and all make sense, but they don't bother to explain the MacGuffin and why it exists. And so therefore, right. uh, it it's has that sense. Really pointless. Yeah. So, so <laughs> are, just we, are we husbanding this as a spoiler? Really? Right. Okay. So yeah. I mean, the star map, right? That's what we're talking right, about. Yeah. And, and the other thing, of course, is that the star map literally is a deus ex machina at the end. It's like, oh, R2 wakes up and he had the other half of the star map. And that's like, you were on the Death Ear star. You guys were all on there, and it would have given uh, 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 Finn a desperately needed function in the plot to let him download the uh, the, the star map from the Death Ear star while they were there, by the way. And then that would explain why you have two pieces that have to fit together. One was in the hands of the First Order. One was in the hands of a desperately underutilized Max von Sydow. And then you put them together. But no, it was just sitting in R2 who was sulking for 35 years, which, you know, again, if R2 had seen the prequels, I don't blame him. But still, it's... Well, he, he uh, I thought he was James it's, Bond in, uh, it's, it's in really, it's, it's really slack. Right. He was, he very much was except without the beard. Um, but yeah, it was, it was very, very sloppy, uh, plotting, which I, I, as I was watching it, I was literally, I was dumbfounded that something, because this movie is a lot of things. And, uh, you know, we're, we, we talk about how it's a, it's a little bit, um, uh, watered down. It's a little bit warmed over, but what it had not been was just, just desperately stupid up until that point. And then at that point it just was, and that, that really uh, irritated the crap out of me that uh, the MacGuffin turns out to have been in your heart all along. Dumbo is not the right answer. Well, it's something that we see a lot now in this later referential post pop culture wave of blockbusters is that, or, or genre TV writing even is that the uh, writers now come up with the emotional beats that they want to deliver. And then, wrap a MacGuff a procedural MacGuffin around that. That well, how do I have all these emotional beats occur? Well here's the here's the thing that they're doing that will allow them to have this happen and this happen and this happen. Uh whereas the first one, uh the uh procedural MacGuffin comes first and then into that is seamlessly layered the emotional beats. And so it seems a lot more organic, uh whereas uh now I think a lot of the times that you can you know, you can see the plot machinery uh, whirring. You can hear the, the grinding of its gears. Well, I mean, I, I would have loved to have seen it whir. That's the thing is that um, it, it never really whirred. It, it, it's, you sort of are progressing from scene to scene because it's Star Wars and you know that, well, we've, we've gotten this far. We have to go to Moss Eisley. Oh, look, we're on wet Moss Eisley in a Cambodian temple. That's nice. Uh, with a desperately underutilized Lupita Nyong'o. And then we're, you know, oh, now we're with the, and then the bad guys attack. Okay. Now we have to have a, a sword fight for some reason and, and so forth and so forth. And so it's not really that the plot ever whirs, the action whirs, uh, but the plot 
sort of is left, you know, for us to fill in because we've seen the story that it's the plot of, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a delivery system between emotional beats, not something yeah, that makes sense right. into itself. But we've fallen into the trap that I discussed earlier, which is of uh, talking Objecting a lot about the, the flaws. Yes, so right. I want to also talk about the, uh, it's uh, in addition to the uh, the large chunks of it where the economy works, also the sense of humor is back. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are yes. uh, scenes that, the the two stormtroopers moving nonchalantly away from the uh, uh, yes um, uh, Jedi Knights uh, <laughs> tantrum um uh, 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 Rosen Troop and Stormcrantz is what yes. we called them uh, I want to see those guys in every movie now <laughs> the two stormtroopers who oh crap and then they just yep 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 not part right. of this and, but if they do do that it'll be a, a reference right? it'll yeah. be a callback it'll have, be referring back to the, to a, another film. Um, and but at least it'll be referring to itself, not to Star Wars, right? Because that's one of the things that was original in this movie was elements like that, like uh, Kylo Ren losing it and and just cutting up uh, control panels with his lightsaber. You don't see that kind of behavior from the dark side. The dark side used to be all very, you know, sort of Zen badass Lee Van Cleef. And to see the dark side as sort of like crazy and uncontrolled and 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 like that. That's that's kind of new and interesting. Yeah. And another thing, these guys are the pimply neo Nazis. Well, are. that's that's one of the that's one of the other things is that the reason everyone is like nine years old that this is like a Harry Potter reunion is because yeah they they killed all the people who actually were old Nazis uh, by blowing up a series of Death Stars and apparently a lot of uh, uh, Star Destroyers. But now these are like the sort of you know sons and and kid brothers of the Nazis who are now like sort of relearning all the lines and that's sort of. I appreciated a little bit of that, that sort of, we don't really know how to do an evil empire. Uh, Supreme Leader Snoke, could you help us out? Um, and, and that, that quality of it does come through and it, and it, uh, goes a long way to justifying why this empire is not super good at stuff. Whereas in the old empire, we just had to assume they were terrible at crap because, oh, Luke is just that awesome. But now, no, the reason they're not very good at anything is they're, this is literally their first rodeo. They're, they're trying out daddy's or granddaddy's helmet and seeing if it fits and uh that's that's a that's a nice touch that that goes through without them necessarily beating you over the head with it and i also really like the fact that abrams went for practical effects as often as he possibly could obviously you can't do that uh all the time in star wars um and you shouldn't do it all the time in star wars but he did it every time you could which makes all the difference in the world you actually believe that any of this is happening as opposed that you're watching some sort of horrible saturday morning cartoon gone awry which is what happened with the prequels right because the revelation of the first one is just how solid and real and industrial everything seemed and then the the uh the prequels were you know so obviously you know Green early screen. animation. Yeah. Uh, another thing that uh, in keeping with the economy and it's something that uh, people who are wrong complain about is how quickly Ray gets her 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 force on gets and her, her mojo. Uh, right, because uh, I, and I think you know there are people who are in in good faith I guess let's pretend are complaining <laughs> that uh, uh, you know she gets too good too quickly. But really, do you really want to have the whole second movie be a training sequence, you know, have we've seen enough training sequence. Maybe we've seen enough origin story for everybody, for all pop culture properties. Maybe we just want to like have that happen and, and get on with that. So having, you know, uh, a bootstrap that in crisis mode is, is more than a okay with me. And you just want to quickly uh, slap down the, uh, the foolish na- notion that Ray is a Mary Sue character. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it misuses the term Mary Sue, which is, if anything, it's about an author putting themselves into a 
a, a, a property as a hyper-competent, usually a hyper-competent love interest, I'm pretty sure Larry Kasdan does not see himself as a teenage uh, girl from a desert planet. Um, I'm pretty sure that is not his self-image. I think that, um, uh, first of all, uh, the whole, I mean, part the, the, this is not a Mary Sue. This is a callback to, guess what, Star Wars, in which Luke Skywalker is a scruffy nerf herder who turns out, nope, actually, he's the freaking samurai, the samurai who is going to bring, um, uh, who's, who's going to destroy the Death Star, use the Force. He's the, the greatest Jedi that's ever been known, um, and he's just been living out here on this what we thought er- earlier was a forgotten backwater. He's already hyper competent in the first. Yes, time. right. He's and then he gets super, super good at the beginning of the of the of the third one of, of Return when he single handedly destroys Jabba's uh, entire criminal empire, pretty much. And that's that's really badass. But we've never seen Luke be bad at anything throughout the whole trilogy, right? He's emotional, and that's what Yoda has to sort of try and beat out of him is this uh this likeness to to, to Darth Vader, this this emotional core of him, um, and turn him into the sort of Zen guy that Yoda thinks all uh uh Jedi should be. But he's always been super competent. I mean he's the best he's the best pilot on the planet, right? Um we know that he's been um uh hitting womp rats in, in Beggar's Canyon and they're not much bigger than three meters. So I mean <laughs> he's really, really good at the beginning. We just don't have a sequence on Tatooine where he zooms around and does all kinds of awesome stuff because we have to get him off Tatooine really fast. And because he's the, uh, sort of the audience stand in for this crazy new universe, he has to be relatively passive until again. And this is what makes Star Wars so great. His natural passivity that we need for the narrative has a natural endpoint when Kenobi is, uh, killed in the, in the sword fight with Darth Vader. And that's when Luke becomes a proactive. Um, uh, uh, part of the team. Although even then, he's still saying we have to rescue Leia, and he sort of sets up everything in motion. So you know, Ray is is uh, not a Mary Sue either in the classical or the lazy sense. Um, she is a hyper competent main character because guess what? Star Wars is about hyper competent main characters. It's not about um uh, the common man. If Ken Loach makes a Star Wars film, then we'll see some uh actual scruffy nerf herder who um uh, works their way up thanks to a government scholarship to Jedi school. But for right now, this is a movie about a galactic aristocracy, so get with the program. Right. And in this one, Ray is more hard-bitten, but they set that up. She's been living on her own as a scavenger in the desert. On Tatooine 2? Yes. And we have uh, uh, Finn to be the, the emotional everyman, and uh, that's a nice uh, flip on it. Although head. I would have loved to have seen him be competent at anything. I think that you cannot simultaneously pat yourself on the back about having a black uh, main character and then make him be the dramatic foil to everyone else's competence for the first 89 minutes of the movie. I think that that's, that's a strong miscast. And then to have him turn out to have been the janitor, that's wrong on every level, uh, including the one where, why was he in a combat mission then? Um, it's, it's just a lot of things wrong with, with Finn, but hopefully they've got two right. more and movies that's, to that's fix that. That's a reference too. That's a reference to uh, a riff from a Kevin Smith, uh, Kevin Smith movie. Right. Yeah. And it still should not have, it, it was unfair to Finn's character to make, to treat him that lazily. I think if you're, if you're going to make me care about Finn, show me that you've cared about Finn first. That's all I asked for. So as it was, um, when they introduced Poe Dameron and we think he dies, I mean, we don't think, but you know what it is. I was like amazed that, um, they actually went to the point where, nope, Poe Dameron is not going to be the hero. We're going to transfer the hero's mantle to Finn because Poe Dameron is dead. And then when Poe comes back, 
to life or it turns out, nope, I was on the other side of the sand dune. I don't know why we didn't meet each other on the planet of utter coincidence. Um, uh, it's like, oh, well, there you go. We've just yanked yet another agency rug out from under Finn. Thanks for helping, Poe. It's a tribute to John Boyega's uh, screen presence, though, that I think that his uh, that he sells it in a way that you're not necessarily always focused yeah. on that, that uh, you still really like him and relate to him and you care. No, about I, I don't him. I don't hate John Boyega at all. Right. I, 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 I was pitying John Boyega or rather Finn. Yeah, I, I'm not arguing, <laughs> but rather moving on to uh, I think uh, the wider point of the main thing that makes this movie work is that guess what? There's characters you care about again and they're well cast. Yeah. Oscar Isaac is terrific. He's a great actor. He's always been a great actor. It's great to see him get to play an action part because obviously he is born to swing off a balcony and stab someone. Did you think um, he was doing a, a, a Pacino with Serpico? I think he was doing a little Pacino as Han Solo, right? I, I think he was, I, I don't know how much Serpico he had in him because he was not playing anything like a Serpico part, but, but was he was like, definitely there, Pacino. A, an early 70s Pacino vibe going on. Yeah. Definitely. I, I think that may have been Oscar Isaac sort of saying, well, we're going back to 1977. What, who do I want to play from 1977? And yeah, I think there's a, there's a strong, there is a very strong Pacino uh, quality to his, to his performance there. And uh, obviously Daisy Ridley is terrific. Um, it, unlike Mark Hamill, God bless him. Um, he was not the world's greatest actor in 1977. He was, he was good at playing what they gave him to play, but he was not good. Um, and, uh, Daisy Ridley is like light years better an actor than, than Mark Hamill. And I think that shows. And she's also got a really, uh, she's got a great screen presence so that even when she's doing something that sort of is on the page tiresome, you're not tired of watching her do it because she does it so well. And the bit where she and Adam Driver are having their force fight, that's really just, that's just strong acting from both of them. The, the, you know, they're, oh, nope, nope. And it's all done with, with no special effects except some of the sound and no dialogue. So if you compare that to the Saruman Sauron fight in Lord of the Rings, which is basically the same thing, but they had to fly around like Muppets. Uh, in that one, this is like a million times better than that Sauron Sauron fight. And only the fact that one of them was Christopher Lee makes you ever forget that. Right. So I guess, uh, now the next one we have to look forward to is a, uh, prequel that explains something we don't need explained, but has a great cast. So, mm -hmm. uh, I have, uh, mixed hopes for that. Uh, and, and it's directed by Rian Johnson, which is a good sign, right? Yep. That's a good. Or sign. Ryan Johnson. Uh, so they've lined up some interesting, uh, directors. And so, uh, we'll get to see, uh, what uh, is built upon this that does not end with blowing up the Death Star and uh, I guess even that, deathier star. Yeah. And that, I guess, means that our podcast just ended by blowing up the Death Star. Woohoo! Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep this podcast off the anatomical table by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as Rick Neal. Ralph Gitzel. Derek Upham. And Sean Murphy. Watch out for our Patreon coming as soon as we finish some high-grade cat herding. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.